supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconslap from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Greetings. And unfortunately, not Brat Nehru this week. Brat's a not do not a little, a little bit sick. Um, Under the weather. Yeah, very devastated by seeing Djokovic win the tennis again, and tennis just being over generally. He definitely so. would be devastated by that. But uh, please send your positive, get well energy in the direction of one Virat Nehru so that he may join us next week for the episode that we said we'd give you this week. Yes, we're going to be talking about Uncut Gems, which is out on Netflix now, as well as the new Adam, sorry, David Lynch film, Short, What Did yeah. Jack Do? What Did Jack Do? Is on and Netflix? History of the Killer Gang, which true, is on Stan. Yes. The True History of the Killer Gang. Yes. Um, those will be next week. So uh, the other bit of housekeeping um, is that... Last week, if you caught it, we said those films would be spoken about this week. But you may not have caught last week because due to a technical problem, we didn't go to air in our regular time on 7.30 Wednesday. We ended up actually airing that episode on 11.30 on Sunday morning. But it's also available on the podcast and iTunes, Spotify, and the 2SCR website, so you can go and catch up at all things Film Fight Club. But for now, we are talking a, a bit of streaming. We're talking later in the program about... Dolomite is my name, the new film from Eddie Murphy, which is on Netflix, as is The Two Popes, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. We'll also be touching on Midway, which is in cinemas now. But first, we are talking about The Lighthouse. I call it the local premiere of this at the Fantastic Film Festival Australia launch. The Fantastic Film Festival has its inaugural run at the Randwick Ritz come February 19. And The Lighthouse is in cinemas tomorrow. It is the new film from the witch director, Robert Eggers. It is co-written by Robert Eggers and his brother, Max Eggers, and stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. It is shot in black and white in 4.3 and takes place on an island uh, sometime, say, about 100 or so years ago. 1800s. Yeah. Late 1800s, yeah. Two lighthouse keepers, a senior one and an apprentice, played by Defoe and Pattinson, respectively, are tasked with isolation on this remote island to man this lighthouse for a month, and things spiral from there. Chris, what did we think of the lighthouse? It took a while for me to really warm to this. For the first act, I would say, um, the film is trying to get by on its atmosphere, and for me, this film's actually at its weakest when it's trying to pile on the atmosphere because there's a lot of horror film cliches here. Um, it felt like a lot of showboating without substance. It, there's a lot of really ostentatious sound design and it's trying to creep you out with flashing glimpses of things that go bump in the night. And it just felt too affected for me. The film really comes to life when the conflict between these two men starts to come to the fore and that's not until about 30 minutes or so in. Uh, fortunately, the, uh, the dialogue, which is extremely period authentic, is really enjoyable to listen to, and the performances are great, particularly Willem Dafoe. I would actually say really only Willem Dafoe, to be honest. I would say Pattinson was good, but uh, in comparison, he, he struggles a bit. I don't, I don't entirely disagree. I think I give Rob Pattinson's performance more credit than you do. I really enjoyed some of his more manic moments. Certainly the comedy that more of a he brought than Defoe to this You're film right, actually. is outstanding. He, he, he did bring some great levity in the comic moments. Including some particularly crude scenes. Defoe was my favorite. His mastery of the vernacular of an old, weary, sea ca- wannabe sea captain on this remote outcrop and just the shots of the light dancing in his face and his beard, which only he could grow, and the camera zoomed right up in his face, because were he, gorgeous. I could have watched that for an hour straight. Defoe's a guy who gets a long way on his really distinctive looks, 
And in this film, he he does not have the typical Defoe look or the, even a typical Defoe performance at all. But it's so good. Oh, he's excellent. I, I'd watch it just for him. Yeah. T- turning it, to some of the stylistic aspects, I agree that the f- anyone who heard the synopsis of this might think of Round the Twist. And it deploys <laughs> some well, similar tropes, but Round the Twist was going through a comedic edge where this is going for a more philosophical bent. I think that Lighthouse is a, some kind of scary beacon of the unknown is a is a pretty standard uh, stand- trope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've seen it in uh, Shutter Island. Uh, that wonderful Song of the Sea from the Irish Film Festival for years back as it played at the Sydney Film Festival. Uh, yeah, a, a great animated uh, film from the team that made Secret of Kells, which is another good animated film, but let's talk about The Lighthouse. Yes. <laughs> um, another film that's uh, interesting to compare this to is The Wild Boys, which was at the French Film Festival, the Brisbane Film Festival last year, similarly shot in 4-3 in black and white, with very which and the, the style of production draws strong attention to the foregrounds and the setting. I think this managed it somewhat better, though, um, if only for the fact that it was consistent, and it worked to great effect in some of the scenes heavily involving props any scene involving a seagull for instance or seagulls um was very engaging and sometimes in a very uh, perverse way entertaining yeah I, I see that um i i think it's really a slow burn of a film because the main enjoyment is the battle of wills uh robert pattinson's character is reluctant to drink uh his sworn off drinking while defoe is a raging alcoholic and uh defoe is also just a lazy bugger basically who insists upon all of the unpleasant or difficult tasks being carried out by and robert pattinson stuff. and all the menial yeah. stuff yeah it's a point of authority it's a point of i'm in charge of you this is my rock and yeah i'm the king of one yeah i i i, I those bits are most enjoyed I honestly think the film could have been tighter. It could have been it a could 30, have been tighter. 50 minute film that, no, it, in order it definitely to keep the momentum up. It could have been. It's a novella-sized plot because basically the tension of the film is Pattinson shows um, resentment at being asked to do all these tasks and uh, Defoe picks him up on every little problem, every little mistake he makes uh, all the time and it feeds off the growing resentment to him seems to be uh, getting pleasure out of, you know, Pattinson's suffering, basically. Yeah, He's, if you've ever worked in an office space where someone calls you or someone out for leaving crumbs on the kitchen counter, then you know what he's dealing with here. Yeah, and in response to his growing frustration, Defoe seems to pile on even more and more um, menial tasks and laborious struggle onto Defoe's shoulders. Uh, sorry, onto Pattinson's shoulders. Um, but, yeah, it's really just about how th- there's almost no dramatic incident. It's entirely a film of the atmosphere and the um, the performances and watching the growing tension. But it, uh, I, I think it's the humor that really saves the film because um, whenever it's trying to be serious, I find it to be too self-serious. I didn't really find this film scary. I don't find it scary. I don't think it's necessarily going for that. This isn't like The Witch. No, but if you, enjoy the, if you enjoy The Witch, this isn't the sort of type of film you would there look are, for. There are elements, though, that seem to be trying to scare you. Um, whenever supernatural elements come in, uh, I, I wondered what the purpose of them was beyond, I guess, just trying to create a sense of fear, trying to add atmospheres. There's this motif about a mermaid and the the way the mermaids were, uh, fit into the, to this uh, plot 
was never really clear to me. I think I think it's entirely a symbolic thing, but it it's too loud in the way that it's it, you know whenever it appears it's like massive sound design booming and it's it's so ostentatious for it to really work as as a symbol to me and it just ends up dragging down the film a bit. I think what he's trying to do or what they are trying to do is this modern event of storytelling. We saw it. I'll use the Shutter Island analogy again. Is what he is Sorry, seeing. We were talking about Shutter Island with regard to this film when we were walking to the no, studio. No, no, we, we did perhaps with the Tarts of the Lighthouse earlier. Oh, okay. No, we did. Um, but the idea of is he seeing what is in front of him? Is it real or not? And there is some guesswork in there. There is some tension in that. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's the most compelling part of the film. Neither are some of the theories which certainly people bring to the bear of to what extent, if at all, this, this is, is real. realistic. I, ju- I just didn't find that stuff well-developed enough to be that interesting. The same goes for basically all of the, the supernatural hinting. I think it, it's a sort of half-baked idea. The real What's really interesting here is just um, we're in this dark miserable location and two people are driving each other nuts speaking of the fantastical elements of the film what the bit that really got to me and really frustrated me that the third act goes into quite heavy territory regarding the prometheus myth now i've seen throughout literary history film history this is one of the most popular things directors like to adapt we've seen them well a few times alien frankenstein i'd argue prometheus the film even though it's not a very good film pygmalion obviously there's been bad adaptations like my fair lady um a lot of the other alien films I don't think this does it well, if only because it is just so blatant in trying to shut it in your face. I rewatched Portrait of Lady on Fire, which dealt with the Orpheus myth. Um, that is very direct in addressing it, but it, directed a, it, it covered a myth which is very novelly covered in cinema. I can think of The Age of Innocence and, again, Portrait of Lady on Fire. We've seen the Prometheus Twin done. Twin and Twin Peaks. We've seen the Prometheus myth done over and over and over again. There's nothing new about how it's done here. It's more like Gilbert's Pygmalion and Galatea, where it's just so direct and shoving, hey, we're going to do this great advent of storytelling in your face. But we've seen it before, and um, it's blaring for film that's otherwise trying to be heavy on guesswork and open to interpretation. Mm. Uh, um, I would agree. I think um, I, I didn't, without going into spoilers, I didn't mind the way that the, the myth was handled with regard to the to the ending of this film, I I, I thought it was, I thought it was a, a, as satisfying as it could be given all the the elements at play here. Um, we mentioned earlier the cinematography, uh, but we I need to give uh, more of a shout out to how good it was. It is great. There was a cinematography Academy Award nomination for this film, which is its sole Oscar nod. Um, yeah, I think it's very well deserved. Oftentimes, there's a tendency whenever there's a film in black and white to automatically nominate it. Um, this is not one of those times the the use of shadow here is, is beautiful yeah um the the isolation and the madness encroaching that you know is really what drawn out through the the pure black yeah all i would add, i absolutely agree. all i would add to that is the storm scenes emblematic of how compelling storm scenes should be could be staged in low light and particularly in black and white they were gorgeous they were stunning yeah that's right it's fun watching the madness really sink in and these two actors letting loose and going at each other oh they signed on because they needed to have a ball filming it and they very clearly did yeah um i i would recommend it but i don't think it's quite the masterpiece that people have been hyping it up to be 
No, neither. It, it fits in perfect to something like Fantastic Fest, which again is screening from the 19th. But that is The Lighthouse. It is screening from tomorrow in cinemas, uh, most places. I think they'll, they'll be screening it. Yeah, a, a limited release, but I think it's still getting a run at some some event cinemas and the like. You'll catch it at the Ritz and Orpheum and... Dendies. Uh, Dendies, yeah. Um, so th- next we're talking about The Two Popes. You're listening to Glenn Falcon and Chris Evans on Film Fight Club. The Two Popes is now streaming on Netflix. It is directed by Fernando Marielis, who directed City of God. It is starring Anthony Hopkins as then Pope Benedict XVI and Jonathan Price's then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, who is obviously currently Pope Francis I. This one was also, uh, if we're talking about who worked on it, uh, notably written by my arch nemesis, Anthony McCartan, who wrote The Theory of Everything, Darkest oh, Hour, and Bohemian Rhapsody. So not our favorite person. We're going to get into the, some of the problems with the writing of this film in a little bit. This pl- takes place in 2012, immediately pli- prior to the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI, and re- recalls the, um, a discussion between, a fictionalized discussion between the two of them, as well as events surrounding Cardinal Ratzing ascension to the papacy in 2006 and the historic events of Cardinal Bergoglio back in his home country of Argentina. I liked this film for its performances. I really enjoyed Jonathan Price, but Anthony Hopkins far and above. This is my favorite performance from him since Burt Monroe in The World's Fastest Indian. Not only does he bring a great weight of gravity and empathy to a figure who is very contentious, but there's a lot of dry humor in this, and a lot of that is due to better elements of the scripting. Hopkins brings it out and I as we will get into the detractions but I enjoyed watching this film just for him I think Hopkins performance is actually very moving um, very subtle he makes this character about as moving and as relatable as I think anyone could hope for really um, absolutely there's, yeah. there's a very there's an early contender for my favorite credit scene of the year at the end of the film which you won't spoil but it's great I think um he the the aim of this film and Hopkins' performance seems to be to make Ratzinger, who is I think um, an easy person to hate, into a symp- a very sympathetic person to maybe point towards the humility that might have been behind his decision to step down as the Pope. As far as a character drama, I think the film is good and effective. Um, I think a lot some of these conversations. Uh, between these two men are uh, really interesting. I think the historical background um, to Bergoglio's uh, involvement with the military dictatorship in Argentina in the 70s is, is really interesting. Um, but, man, Anthony McCartan, it's just not that good a script. No, there's a lot of problems here. The first and foremost, and it's very obvious, there is nothing about what is effectively a duologue which could have taken place in just one setting continuously or with one break that would not have been better served by a as stage, a stage setting. It works as a play. I think there's this film actually was a play rec- first. And, and that's fine. But there's nothing that here rec- better recommends the telling to a film setting. Granted, they got a film in some beautiful vistas, but in, p- in a pure narrative dramatic sense, you feel it because like with the Oscar Wilde adaptations of the 2000s, which aren't very good, you just see them jump between location and location yeah. it's actually one point where the conversation shifts too and you feel there's this whole missing beat the, it's right after Ratzing oh, sorry, excuse me the Pope Benedict Sixteenth uh, gives a shock revelation um, regarding his role in papacy to then Bergoglio and right. then suddenly we feel like we missed a whole hour of the conversation yeah um, more on that later yep. with um, the ways that they've tried to make make this very uh, chamber drama two guys talk at each other against beautiful backdrops film cinematic i think mostly fall flat 
the uh Merrells brings this style that he's used in some of his previous films like City of God, Constant Garden of Blindness, where it's super shaky camera, but um it's not not just a naturally shaky camera, it's a intentionally shaky camera, you know, and it, it's like the camera's on a canted angle, crash zooming in and out, micro jittering all over the place. And sometimes the the times the deployment of this technique seems completely random as if they're just thinking okay this is feeling a bit static two 80 year olds talking at each other about theology and history so which let's, was fun i, I, I don't get me bits. wrong i find that I, I it's it is interesting and it does work but suddenly we've crashed zooming for some reason because it's like okay the audience must be getting bored um the other way that they've tried to open it up is flashbacks to bogolio's past in Argentina, which some of which are in a much more, they're much more traditionally filmed, and I would say um, sometimes beautifully so. But the the all the time we're watching these flashbacks, we're also having everything that happens in them explained, and it breaks the immersion to me. Like the characters are talking to each other about things they know, you know, they're telling the audience through dialogue. But the result is like, so when you were 16, you went to a da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, okay, are they, are we, that breaks the whole feeling of we're intimately sitting with these people having having a conversation. When you See, that, that didn't bother me because the, the flashbacks didn't take part of place either in a narrative sense or in a time sense. They were meant to be supplementary rather than revelatory in themselves. So that wasn't an attraction for me. I also have to give credit to the casting of the young Bogolio, Yuan Munijin, of someone who looks very much like Anthony, so Jonathan Price. Um, on the matter of the flashbacks, while they do discuss in some detail Bogoglio's um, contentious past, they allude to Benedict XVI's contentious past, but dismiss it. And it never gets near the introspection that Bogoglio's past did. And the film feels very uneven in that sense. It feels like they're just jumping, skipping this. And that's part of a trend in this film, I think, of taking the easy way out because it similarly chooses not to go into... Um, in much depth at all, the matter of the child sex abuse scandal in the Vatican. And in one part, which Glenn spoke about earlier, completely skips out on a conversation where we would get into some kind of depth about that. And as much as I find the film enjoyable in a simple watching um, crowd-pleaser type of way that it's been clearly constructed to be, politically it feels kind of uncomfortable. Like, in some ways, the movie feels like a PR piece for the Catholic Church. It it it's trying to I think um, rehabilitate Benedict's reputation as a pope to some way because it's a very cutesy um, warm depiction of him and it glosses over these more difficult subjects when I think really that that's core to the issue of his resignation and and this period in the history of the church to make in in some ways to make a film about. Um, this spiritual crisis and the um, meeting and the conflicts and unification of these two men um, and not go into much detail about this issue. It's addressed, but barely compared to some of the other things in this. feels a, a little bit cowardly. Two points to that. I liked the scene. There was one scene where we see the Pope, Benedict XVI, meet a bunch of worshippers, and it's actually very touching and very sweet. Um irrespective of um, the criticism the Christmas window I'm about to go into, I don't think having that or other scenes like it was a detraction from the film. I don't either. 
as regards the allegations of child sex abuse in the church, this is a really serious issue. It is covered in some detail in the film. The scene that, we're not going to remember, the scene Chris is alluding to, it's so glaring in how they move away from it. They mute the conversation at one point. And it's not just obvious in that sense, and I agree with what Chris has said, but from a pure narrative dramatic perspective, it's the only time that technique is used and it takes you out of the film. If that technique was used more often in order to signify montage moving from one conversation to yeah. another, that's fine. But it's the one time and it's the one time having a serious discussion about the contentious issue of the movie. Exactly. And the contentious issue of that period historically. So to avoid talking about that in a film that goes out of its way so much to show popes are just like you and me, popes are human too it just sort of leads to this feeling of like, why now? And, and what is the agenda behind this film? I, I, I do have to, I think you have to acknowledge the film is, yes, implicitly making a very strong statement on this issue, but it's it's pulling its punches very heavily for a yeah. film that bills itself as being, hey, we'll give you an intimate insight into these two figures. Exactly. There's a lot of um, focus on the ways that popes are just like you and I, as I just said. Um, popes eating pizza, popes listening to ABBA, Pope's Didn't liking like Pope's watching football and think, and the favorite German TV show, which we won't ruin. It's a great show. Yeah, you might remember it from SBS in the '90s and to early 2000s. Um, that sort of thing, but so much so that I actually started to feel that was overplayed. That we were fo- at first, it's like okay, that's it's kind of amusing. Dancing Queen is playing uh, in the Vatican, but then which um, and I I can't take credit for this, but uh, it was pointed out in the review. But the lyrics of Dancing Queen, um, you know, um, the King is on their way, uh, were very purposeful for. The, I uh, forgot. Sorry, the the, the where this, the, the, the voting con- the conclave the, where they take the pope. Yes, right. it, was, it was a it was a nice subtle touch. But um, yeah, I feel like that aspect of it is overplayed. Um, it it's amusing at times, but it but the film does have a bit of an overly cutesy vibe. I would say. Yeah. Um, that's the two popes. Two popes. It is streaming now on Netflix. Um, you're listening to Glenn Falconstein, Chris Evans on Film Fight Club. The next film we're talking about is Dolomite Is My Name, which is streaming on Netflix. It is directed by Craig Brewer. It stars Eddie Murphy, Keegan-Michael Key, Craig Robinson, Titus Burgess, Divine Joy Randolph, Cody Smith-McPhee, Snoop Dogg, and a few other... Oh, Wesley Snipes and a few other... Oh, man, Wesley Snipes is so good in this. He's pr- as good as Eddie Murphy was. He's probably... Eddie, yes, he has a smaller role. Probably my favorite thing about this. I would agree. It is about Rudy Ray Moore... A figure who, as we learn later in life, wants to be a comedian and film star. He's, he he basically wants to do anything that can prove that he has what it takes. He tries music, then comedy, then film. And the first half of this uh, biopic is showing you his rise to becoming a f- successful comedian. And the second half is about down and dirty, low budget movie making. And it takes the disaster artist approach to um, his first film is uh it's also it should be noted um from the writers who wrote ed wood which is another film you could easily compare it to in showing somebody who's willing to get entrepreneurial and do whatever it takes to get it make his visions a reality there's a lot of affection here for filmmaking i liken it in a sense to what i think is eddie murphy's last good live action picture before this bowfinger which was 21 years ago uh, yeah right um like bowfinger as you say there's a lot of affection for people who are willing to take any length, uh, go to any lengths to make their dreams a reality. Um, I would say that the scenes showing the way that low-budget filmmaking is is done feel very authentic to me. I've been on some of these ramshackle sets before with uh, (laughs) people breaking all the rules to make it work, and the way that uh, that kind of innovative thinking is shown 
the problem solving and also the camaraderie of the people on the set feels very authentic to those situations. Um, one of the scenes I've laughed, I've laughed, I can't think of too many scenes I've laughed at more than this scene, uh, but there's a sequence where they film a sex scene. Uh, yeah. It's, it's gold. Yeah, yeah. The scene itself, you know, seems like it kind of dated, but goofy, funny, but, but showing the way that the scene was put together raises it to being yeah. hilarious. Eddie Murphy in this, it's like I said, it's his best role in 21 years. I'm not counting Shrek, his voice role. Right. I really like this. He was exceptional in this. And I don't think he's ever gone away. I didn't mind Tower Heist a few years back, but he's made a lot of terrible choices in terms of the roles he's pursued. This is really a comeback role for him. And it makes sense as a as a role because here, Rudy Ray Moore, um, you could draw an, even though they're coming, they come from different places and reach a different level of fame, you can draw a link between Eddie Murphy's early stand-up being the the filthy, dirty stuff that kids want to watch because it makes them feel grown up versus uh, Rudy Ray Moore's approach where he makes these scandalous records with a, a little devil sticker on the packaging um, because the record labels thought it was too filthy to release. Yeah, there's some commentary going on here about is he really he's a great guy is he really a bad guy there's an, uh, a side remark to why can't you be like the sweet Bill Cosby so it's <sighs> very blatant in terms of uh, some of its commentary there um, speaking of the performances I Wesley Snipes was hilarious Wesley, he yeah he plays a delivery. pretentious uh, actor uh, who's hired as a director to uh, on the Dolomite movie he Dolomite, plays De Earl De Martin Dolomite is the name of the character that eventually brings Rudy Raymour to success as a comedian who he then translates over to the big screen um, the, I think the early scenes showing his desperation at feeling like he's failed are, are quite poignant, um, and it's a really in, enjoyable rump to the to the top. But I think the film doesn't go into the desperation and the depths, especially if you compare it to something like Ed Wood. Um, the conventionality of the structure really uh, comes to the uh, to the fore in a big way towards the end. And because it's focusing on the fun and the raucousness of this character, um, while remaining so conventional, it starts to feel just kind of tension-free. It's very entertaining. And but it's very it, sweet when he starts to meet his followers and yeah, it's those who are endeared to him. Yeah, it's warm. He likes, he likes to give back. He's a nice guy. Yeah, it's warm and it's sweet and it's fun. But uh, you get the sense that with this character, there is some darkness that they hint towards, but maybe a better film would have explored that more. Just to complicate that sort of smooth ride to the finish line. Because it, it, I really enjoyed this film in the first half, uh, but just towards the end, I, I started to feel like it's it's going down too smoothly. I don't disagree. I don't think it's attraction for the film. I think it's something that could have made it better. I don't think this is a bad film. I think it's an entertaining film. I think it's more Very than a entertaining, serviceable film. I would say. I, but I think that stops from being a really great film. Yeah. Another one criticism I would add to it is that there's one bad piece of cast against Keegan Michael Key. He's a very good comedian, but he's playing the straight man in this, and he's the one who's supposed to say yeah. no. This is outrageous. But it, but he's obviously in joke. on the joke. It's like yeah. Alec Baldwin in all his recent roles. Like he, we he, know he's winking at the camera yeah, every he, moment. He's overplaying it whenever he's like, "Whoa, I want to, I want to tell the truth," and you're making a mockery of my vision. And you, he, but he doesn't seem like he means it. He seems like he's he's about to laugh when he says that. Yeah, that's so, yeah, yeah. So, um, that's yeah. that's pretty much it. Just. I think I feel like there there's a potential really great kind of sad movie about the same subject matter that we're not seeing instead because they they want to make such a crowd pleaser here. I'm fine with them having like, I'm fine with them making the film they wanted to make. We're just saying that from a purely dramatic perspective, it stopped from being a 
uh, I think, a much better film. Yeah, and, and it had those depths while still being a comedy at one point, then just abandoned them because it was so adamant on... As soon as his station changed. Yeah. 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 So that is Dolan Minus My Name. It is streaming on Netflix now. Nighthouse be in cinemas tomorrow. And the two popes are streaming on Netflix now. We're going to be back next week talking Uncut Gems, What Did Jack Do, The True History of the Killer Gang, and Emma. Just quickly, Midways in cinemas now. It is the recounting of the historic battle that changed the tide in the Pacific. It's a new film from Roland Emmerich. Um, it's not going to do especially well here, given it's strange that there is a film about the Pacific theatre that doesn't mention Australia in some of the broader historical context. Um, the act, the, there's good things about this film and there's bad things about this film. From a high-level macro-strategic perspective, the battle scenes are excellently staged. This changes when you go into the cockpits and you have to focus on the actors, excepting, um, sorry, from the Jonas Brothers, Nick Jonas, who's very good in this. Why None is he in this? I was good in this good. Jumanji. Okay. All right. uh, none, of the, none of the personal narratives are endearing. They cast bad British actors, Ed Screen... Uh, and Luke Evans in American roles, as they did from, sorry, uh, Raul from Fans of the Opera. He's one of the main uh, actors in this. Um, the Japanese perspective is uh, heralded by a number of very talented actors, including a great actor who plays Yamamoto. Um, the, so from, I, it's a much better staging than Pearl Harbor, much exponentially better, and those scenes were well recreated, as was the Doolittle Raid, which was better handled than Michael Bay did it. Um, I don't think it's on the level of Toro 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 or many other films to pick this history. I think if you have a key interest in this history, it is worth seeking out. It is a film that is informative and quite slavish to the history, except for uh, one quite egregious uh, sequence towards the end, which I shouldn't say egregious, but jingoistic, where it departs in tone and it's so obvious, where otherwise it's a... America. Yes, it's... Uh, it's a film that celebrates and acknowledges history, but is also at appropriately, for the most part, mooted in its storytelling. So this has been Glenn Falkenstein and Chris Evans. We're back with the Bright Neru next week on Film Fight Club. Stay tuned for the Sonic, Sonic Assassin. Stay safe. Let us know what you want us to fight about because Oscars festival season is all coming up. Yep. And have a wonderful night and enjoy movies. Good night. Bye. <laughs>